0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew in chapter 9 and verse 9, the ninth verse in the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now we're looking at this second incident recorded here in this ninth chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew. Those who were here last Sunday night will recall that on that occasion we looked at the first incident to which reference is made at the beginning of this ninth verse, as Jesus passed forth from thence. From what? Well, from that previous incident. And you remember what that was. There we are told that uh, certain people, four men in fact, brought unto him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. Indeed, we know from the parallel account in Mark's Gospel, that they not only brought these men on a bed to our Lord, but uh, when they came to the house in which he was, they found such a crowd there that they couldn't get in. The people were blocking all the doorways of entry into the house. But these men, carrying the paralyzed men uh, on the mattress, were so anxious that he should come face to face with the Lord, that they climbed up, you remember, onto the roof and tore it open in the ceiling and let the men down into the presence of our Lord. And you remember how our Lord, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven. Then you remember that reading the minds of the Pharisees who were standing by and the scribes, that they were saying within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Our Lord said to them, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Men hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God which had given such power unto men. Now that's the previous incident. Then just moving from there, our Lord happened to pass along and saw this man Matthew, a Jew collecting taxes for the Roman Empire who had just conquered his country. There he is, sitting at the receipt of custom. And looking at him, he said, follow me. And Matthew arose and followed him. Now these uh, incidents uh, in the life and ministry of our blessed Lord and Savior recorded here in these Gospels are full of interest and of instruction. We saw that last Sunday night. Now we shall see it again in a slightly different manner this evening. These uh, events are not merely and not only actual history. They are that, let's never forget that, these are historical events. These are not cunningly devised fables. These are not fantasies. These are not stories weaved out of the imagination of novelists. These are historical reports. Written and compiled in the days of the early church that the early Christians should know the facts concerning the earthly life and cause and ministry of the one whom they worshipped as God and to whom they trusted for their soul's salvation. But these uh, incidents, I say, in stories are not merely actual history. They also, at the same time, uh, represent what uh, still happens in this whole matter, this whole question of our approach as men and women living in this passing world to the Son of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, between them, and undoubtedly that is why they've been recorded for our instruction, between them, they show us the different ways in which people become Christian. Now, what I mean by different ways is this. The different kind of approach in detail in which people become Christian. Now, that's our theme. That's why I'm calling attention to this incident tonight, as I called attention to the previous incident last Sunday night. The theme is how to become a Christian. There was a man, the paralytic man. He became a Christian. Here's another man, this Matthew, publican. He became a Christian. That's, what's, that's what happened to all of them. They're all incidents telling us how these different people became Christian came to recognize this blessed person and to rejoice in his great salvation. That's our theme. And I needn't say that I'm calling attention to it because it is the most important theme that can be considered in this world tonight. Much more important than anything else. Much more important than the international situation. Much more important than this whole question of church unity. Unity which is occupying so much thought at this present time. This is the theme. Whether the church is unified or divided doesn't matter if she's not clear about this message. This is the thing that matters. A unified church can no more save a soul than a single little Bethel somewhere on top of a mountain. This is the message that saves the soul. And that is why I am calling your attention to it. It is the theme of themes. We are in a passing world. We've been singing about it. When ends life's transient dream. That's all it is. This life which is so written up in the newspapers and the books and represented on the television and the wireless. This marvelous, wonderful thing. No, no, it's but a transient dream. When ends life's transient dream. When death's cold sullen stream shall o'er me roll. And it's going to happen to every one of us. In the midst of life we are in death. I try to remind you of that Sunday by Sunday. There are times when a man feels unusually like impressing it to. Weeks come and go and one hears of old lifelong friends who have suddenly gone, taken during this last week. And you and I've got to go. God forbid that we should ever forget it. God forbid that I should ever stand in this pulpit merely to entertain people or to address a congregation. God grant me the ability and the grace by his spirit to realize that I am a dying man speaking to dying men and women. And in that context, there's only one thing that matters. And that is our knowledge of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, of whom we are reading and looking together, at to whom we are looking together in these incidents that are engaging our attention. Now then, that is the theme. And it's put, I say, in different ways to us. Now, what strikes us, of course, is, uh, on the surface, the kind of difference. Between the previous incident and this one. Here are two incidents, and on the surface they seem to be very different indeed, don't they? You see the different approaches. These are the big lessons that come out as I see these incidents taken together and as a whole. Different approaches, but always the same ultimate result. Now that's the principle we must lay hold on. The approach may be different. But the result is always the same. And what matters, as I'm saying, is the second, the ultimate result. But I'm calling attention to the differences and the variations in the approach because people are sometimes stumbled by that. There are some who even lay it down that everybody must come in exactly the same way to this ultimate result. That's quite wrong, according to the scriptures. I think I may have told you before. The story of a man whom I once knew about 25 or 30 years ago. Very troubled about his son. And I knew the son also. I said, why are you so troubled about your son? Well, he said, you know, he hasn't had the Damascus Road experience. And the only reply was, everybody doesn't have the Damascus Road experience. There are other roads that bring you to Christ. Because once you arrive at him, it's always the same for everybody. But there is not only one road that brings us to him. Now, let me show you what I mean. Take these two uh, stories that we are looking at last Sunday nights and tonight's. Now, you can't uh, read these two without being immediately struck by this apparent difference. What is it? Well, take that story. What do you have there? Well, you have people there searching for Christ. The man was aware of his paralysis, deeply aware of his need had heard of Christ, he said, if only I could see this new teacher. I feel he'd put me right. And his four friends agree. So they said, well, let's go to him. So they took the trouble. They set out on a journey. They carried their friend on the mattress. And then they arrive at the house. And as I say, lo and behold, they find they can't get in. But they're so anxious to see Christ that they go up and tear open the roof. And down they put him. Now, the whole emphasis is upon their seeking, their effort. Indeed, their frantic efforts in order to arrive at Christ. That's the picture there. But here we've got something very different. Here's a man sitting at the receipt of customs. We are not looking at a man here who makes a journey to find Christ. He's there making entries into his book. Another man comes with his tax, and he's ready to put that down, finds his name and the appropriate column, just going on with his work and his job, not thinking at all, certainly making no effort to find Christ. What happens here? Well, we find a man here interrupted by Christ who comes to him and suddenly gives him a call and commands him to follow him and the man rises and follows him. Now, you see, there is on the surface a complete contrast. Not the seeker, but the man who's found and who's suddenly called by the Lord. Very well. I emphasize this in order to make this point, that it's still the same. It is still the same probably in this congregation tonight. There may be some here, I'm sure there are, who have come here because you're conscious of your need. You may be in trouble. I don't care what it is. It may be some personal problem, some personal failure. It may be a An awareness of sin. It may be that you can't forgive yourself for your failure. You may be kicking yourself metaphorically. You may have come because you feel ashamed of yourself. You may have come because you've been striving to overcome something and you can't. You're defeated. And that brought you here. Is there any hope? Is there a word? You may have come because of some other problem, bereavement or sorrow. I don't know what it is. It's one of thousands of possibilities. These are the things that brings some people. They're deeply aware of their need, and they're looking for and longing for a saving word. They're like the people in last Sunday night's incident. Yes, but there are others who are not in that position at all. You may have come because some friend uh, invited you, perhaps even had to persuade you. You haven't come because you're aware of any need at all. Indeed, you may have come in a state of great self-satisfaction, just to hear what it's all about. What is this thing that people still do in 1962, this monstrous thing, that people still go and listen to a Christian preacher preaching the Christian message? You may have come like that, certainly not looking for anything or hoping that you'll have a saving word, but quite detached and moved, not seeking at all. Well, people may come in those various ways and there are others, but this is the striking thing you see. That there's one thing common to them all. Suddenly they're confronted by this person. The man carried on the mat, was put in front of Christ and looked into his face. Hears a man doing his job. Suddenly he a voice saying, follow me, looks at him. He's confronting the same person. Though they start in different ways, they end at exactly the same point. And that is the thing I say that is of supreme importance that we come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and his message to us. His call, his demand. I had to make the point last Sunday night that the moment these men did put their friend before our Lord, he took charge. And he didn't do what they thought. He did what he always did. They were interested in paralysis. He said, thy sins be forgiven thee. He takes charge and the men had to submit to him. We shall find exactly the same here in this incident this evening. Very well. Let's not be concerned about the approach. Let's not make a big thing of that. Because, you see, this is the first postulate of the gospel. That whoever we are and whatever we are, our fundamental need is one. You may be very clever. You may be very lacking in ability. You may be very learned or very ignorant. You know, it doesn't matter at all. Your uh, external approach will be different, but... In the end, you'll come and face him. And once you come there, we're all one. There's no difference. Now then, let's see how all this works itself out. Whatever the method, whatever the way, we find ourselves face to face with him. And what does he say? Well, he always says the same thing. Follow me. So our matter divides itself like this. What does this call mean? No man has ever become a Christian without facing this call of Christ. It's impossible. You cannot be a Christian without having heard this call, follow me, and without responding to it. Very well then, here's the first question. What does this call mean? What's its content? What's he really saying? When he turns to a Matthew and says, Follow me. Let's analyze this. It's an interesting word. It's a word that contains within itself the whole meaning and idea of the call that comes to a soldier, to enlist in an army, to surrender, as it were, his right to himself, and to follow the leader, follow the commander, follow his king fight for his country, that sort of call. You always get it during a time of war. It was much more evident in the First World War than in the Second. Your king and country need you. The finger and the face of Lord Kitchener, some of us remember. The call of the country. That's included here. But there is also the idea here of the call to a servant. A master ordering a servant. Issuing an injunction or a command. But also there is another idea. I'm not reading these things in. It's agreed that these are the ideas that are inherent in the word. It is also the call that comes to a pupil or a student to become a follower of a given teacher or a given professor. As a teacher has his following, his followers, And as they follow him in his teaching, that's implicit in our word here. So that when our Lord turns to this man and says, follow me, those ideas, the three of them, are there implicit in the call. Very well, let's look at it. Now, first of all, let me make a comment or two upon the general characteristics of this call. Indeed, it has but one great general characteristic. What is this call? What's he mean? What what is he saying to Matthew? Matthew? When he says, follow me, well, here's the big characteristic, isn't it? He uh, isn't calling Matthew merely to look at him, or uh, to be interested in him, or just to consider him in general. It isn't there. That, That isn't the essence of this word. There's much more content to it than that. Now, I'm putting this negative because there are so many who seem to think that uh, that is uh, what this invitation is, Uh, that they become interested in Christianity and uh, listen to sermons, read books about it, and, well, there it is. That's it. It's it's nothing more than that, Uh, just an invitation to a discussion. I don't blame people for thinking that. That impression is given so frequently on the television and the wireless, that that is it. You just have a friendly chat about religion. Have a discussion together. Didn't seem to operate like that in the case of Matthew, did it? No, of course it didn't, and it never does. As long as you adopt that dilettante attitude and you just sit back and uh, are a bit intrigued by Christianity and interested, you know nothing about this call. It's not this detached theoretical, objective, academic interest. No, no, that doesn't go far enough. Neither is it an invitation to us just to judge or to evaluate or to express our opinions on Christianity. If my preaching of this message gives that impression, well, then I'm a very bad preacher. There's a deeper content here. I don't regard you as a jury who are to give a verdict on what I'm saying. That's not the way the gospel calls the men to decision. I say it's much more like the recruiting sergeant. It's much more like the country issuing a call, which is a command. It's not to judge or evaluate or express our opinions, and we finally state our opinion as to what it tells. No, no. No no, my friends, I'm not on trial, the gospel's not on trial. It you were on trial. It's all of us as we listen to it were on trial. Nothing is so fatal as that notion that we can sit on and look at and read and come to our conclusions. It didn't happen like that to Matthew, it never has happened like that to anybody who's become a Christian. And lastly, I would put it like this, and I'm simply picking out the characteristic modern attitudes. It isn't a question of our picking and choosing out of what he says to us, what interests us and what appeals to us, and what we may think may be helpful. It isn't that we just borrow out of Christianity and then begin to implement and apply in our lives what we think may be of value. Oh, there are millions of people doing that with Christianity tonight. There are people who are not Christians and who say so do that. Men like the late Mr. Gandhi said that he borrowed from the Christian ethic. He still died a Hindu, but he borrowed from the Christian ethic. That's the very opposite of what Matthew did. And any man who thinks that he can pick and choose and take out and take up what he likes and what he agrees with in the Christian teaching knows nothing about this call. It isn't that. Well, what is it? Isn't it obvious? It's a totalitarian call. Follow me. You can't imagine anything more all-inclusive. It's totalitarian. It is, I say, comparable to a man joining the army. He surrenders his right to himself. He surrenders his right to the apportioning of his time and everything else. He belongs to his king and country. He's a man under obedience. He's made an utter submission. That's the call. Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Left everything. No, that is the nature, the character of this command, this call that comes. It means, I say, being a follower in a true sense. It means leaving all, leaving everything. It means that we be governed by him and governed by him in every respect. That's the meaning of the call. Now, let me put it the other way around for you. Take a man like the Apostle Paul. Here's a man who received the same call in a very dramatic manner, you remember, on the road to Damascus. How does he describe himself after he's responded to the call as Matthew did? Well, you read his epistles. This is how he opens. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very poor translation. The authorities are all agreed in saying that the right translation is this. Paul, the bond slave of Jesus Christ. He's a slave of Christ. He's like a slave. He has no right to himself in any respect. He belongs to Christ who's purchased him and he glories in the position. He is a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or he puts it again in another way in writing to the Philippians in particular when he says, To me to live is Christ. It's everything. He is everything. He's all and in all. This is a totalitarian demand and I've given a complete and entire surrender. Follow me. So you see there's nothing partial about it. He doesn't ask for bits or parts or portions of us. He wants the whole man. He wants your mind. He wants your heart. He wants your will. He wants to be the Lord of your life. The master of your whole situation and of your entire faith. Follow me. It's the biggest and the grandest demand that is ever made. It is the call, the demand of a master, of a lord, of a god. That's the content. Let's be quite clear about this. In order to do that, let me enter into the particulars. I say it's a totalitarian demand. Let me show you then some of the aspects of this complete, entire, totalitarian demand which he makes of us. In other words, he asks us to follow him in thought and in teaching. He asks us to surrender our minds to him. Be a follower of mine, Israel. Join my class. Come and learn of me. He puts it like that in another place, doesn't he? He invites us to come and learn of him. I am meek and lowly in heart. He says, come and learn of me. And so that's the same thing. You remember the call of those two men at the beginning of John's Gospel? They put the question to him, Master, where dwellest thou? By which they meant, where do you teach? Where are you giving your instruction? It's always this meaning... This meaning is always present in this word, follow me. He wants us to submit to him as the teacher. Our minds have got to be surrendered and subjugated to him and to his instruction. Now, again, let us put the negatives. When he tells you to follow him, he tells you this, stop relying on what you think. We've all got our ideas, haven't we? Ideas about life, how it's to be lived. Ideas about ourselves. Ideas about God. Ideas about Christ. Ideas about the Christian church. Ah, oh, we are full of ideas. And ever ready to express them. We can manage anybody and everything. I sometimes think except ourselves. Full of opinions. Here comes a demand. Follow me. Stop relying upon your own thoughts. And your own understanding. And your own reason. But not only give up. Your own thoughts give up the teaching of others also. Now, I want to impress this point. It's a vital part of the preaching of this gospel, especially in days like these. He not only asks us to give up our own ideas, he asks us to give up every other human being's ideas. doesn't matter how great they are, how elevated, how exalted. This is how he puts it ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. These are his claims. He He tells his own contemporaries not to listen to the Pharisees and scribes. Well, but they were the authoritative and recognized teachers. He doesn't hesitate to tell the people not to listen to them. He asks them to listen to him And this is his great claim this evening. He demands this exclusive attention. We must shut off every other teaching, every other thought, and listen only to him. This is the offense of the gospel to the modern men. Oh, but he says there are many roads to God. Are you dismissing the whole of Confucianism, and Hinduism, and Buddhism, and all the rest of it, and Mohammedanism? There is simply one answer to give to all that. It is this. I am dismissing them all, and all your philosophers with them. Why? Well, because he does it himself. He says, follow me, his teaching, and his teaching alone. He doesn't hesitate to stand and to say, I am the light of the world. You can't imagine anything bigger than that. He is the whole of the light. There is no light apart from him. He that followeth me, he says, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. But if he doesn't follow him, he is walking in darkness. Listen to him again. I am the way, the truth, And the life. No man cometh unto the Father. But by me. You can talk if you like. About a congress of world faith. But as you do so. You are denying the teaching of the Lord himself. Let them talk about unity. There is no value in a unity. That denies his uniqueness. His early disciples saw it. That's why Peter. Peter. And John, on trial before the Sanhedrin, you remember, didn't hesitate to say, There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. It is Christ and Christ alone. No other, no addition. It is his teaching and his alone. Follow me, he says, nobody else. And he asks us to follow the whole of his teaching Obviously, if we follow him, well, if we make this surrender, we've got to listen to everything, he says. You can't follow him and still say, but he's right here, but I think he's wrong there. The moment you do that, you are still the master, and you are judging him. He says, no, you've got to stop that. Surrender all your thought and all your ideas and those of everybody else. Listen to me and be guided solely by me in this matter of thinking and of teaching and of understanding. Now, my friends, it's because I say I'm preaching as a dying man to dying men. I'm putting this thing so bluntly to you. If you want to know him, if you want to be blessed of him, if you want to become a Christian, well then, stop everything. Listen to him and to him alone. What does he teach? Let me just give you some headings. He asks you to follow him and to accept his teaching with regard to yourself. What does he tell you about yourself? Well, he tells you very plainly that you're lost. The Son of Man, he says, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You're we lost. We're all lost. With all our learning and understanding, we are lost. What he mean? He means we don't know God. We don't know how to live. We don't know how to die. We are ignorant. We are lost. He makes it quite plain. We are every one of us. Lost. Now, you see, there are many who go back at that point, aren't there? Yes, but you see, if you follow him, you've got to accept that. That's what he says. That's his teaching. And he says, follow my teaching. Listen to me. You're lost. You're a sinner. And because of that, you're condemned. You're under condemnation. He says, I have not come into the world to condemn the world but that the world through me might be saved. He says, he that believeth on me is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he does not believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. His teaching is as plain as anything can be. We are not only lost, but we are all condemned by the law of God. The Ten Commandments, the moral law. We haven't lived to the glory of God. We haven't given our lives to God. We were made for that, but we've none of us done it, and therefore we are all sinners, and we're all under the condemnation of the law of God, every one of us. Lost, condemned, and guilty sinners. You've got to follow him when he says things like that. You've got to forsake every other school of teaching and say, this is right, this is true. But he goes on. He says, we're not only lost and condemned, but that we're under the power of sin and evil and under the dominion of Satan. He put that like this, you remember. The strong man armed keepeth his goods at peace. The devil is the strong man armed. You've got to follow his teaching, my friends. And it's permanent teaching. You don't propose to change it after five years' further consideration of it. No, no. This is permanent. This is absolute. The devil. The world is under the power of the devil, under his dominion. The God of this world. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We're all under his power. Evil is in our natures likewise. That's his teaching. He says it's out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, and things of that kind. It isn't that which goes in, it's that which comes out that damns the soul. Read chapter 15 of this gospel according to Matthew, and there you'll find him saying it. That's his teaching, that we ourselves are rotten, sinful, perverted. And so he goes on to say that we need to be saved. We need to be delivered. We need forgiveness. We need a new nature. We need to be made new men. We need a new birth. Didn't he say to Nicodemus? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he must be born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. What's he mean? Well, he means what I've been saying, that we are so rotten, so lost, so vile, so perverted, that no improvement is adequate. We must be renovated, regenerated, born of the Spirit, born of above. We must be made new men and women. That's his teaching. We need an entire chain. A new start. A new beginning. My friend, are you following his teaching? If you want to be blessed of him, you've got to accept all that. That's what he says. Follow me. Whatever you may think of yourself, face this. This is his command. This is his call. Then he goes on to tell us about himself. What does he say? Well, it's here everywhere, isn't it? Son of man. He says he is the son of man. Ye are from beneath. I am from above. That's what he claims. You've got to follow him at this point. You face his person. He says, before Abraham was, I am. The Father and I are one. Didn't he say that to those people at Jerusalem? Did you hear it just now? In the 10th chapter of John's Gospel. Tell us plainly. They said, who you are? He said, I've already told you and you don't believe. I and my Father are one. I am the door. What's he saying? Oh, he's saying that he's God the Son incarnate. He's claiming that he's come from eternity into time. He's not a mere man. He is a man, but he's god Men, Two natures in one person. You've got to believe in his person, my friend. You'll never be blessed of him until you do. But then he goes on to say that he has come. Not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He says he's God. But yes, he hasn't come into the world, though he's God, that we may minister unto him. No, no, he says the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. We are going to meet, some of us, at this communion table. We are going to take broken bread. We are going to drink wine. What for? Well, in obedience to his command, he said, this do in remembrance of me, which means this. He says, go on doing this, and thereby you'll be preaching and proclaiming the great truth concerning me, that I came to give my life a ransom for many. In other words, he didn't primarily come just to teach us and give us an example Nobody can follow it. It's beyond us. He came to die. He came to give his life a ransom. He's going to buy us out of what? Well, of the condemnation that we so richly deserve because of our sinfulness and our failure. This is his teaching. That there is only one way whereby we can be forgiven by God and be reconciled to him and become his children. And that is to believe that he, the Son of God, was bruised for our iniquities, smitten for our transgressions, that he gave himself a sacrifice for sins, that his body was broken, his blood was shed. What for? Well, it was the punishment of our sins that did it. And in and through that act, God is offering us pardon and forgiveness. That's what he taught. Follow me, he says. And as you follow him and his teaching, that is the point at which you arrive. Have you arrived there? No, we are told in the Gospels, many stumbled at this point. John the Baptist couldn't take it for a while. Even the Apostle Peter couldn't. Do you remember the incident of Caesarea Philippi? Peter makes his great confession. Thou art the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then, a few moments later, our Lord has to rebuke Peter. Why? Well, because our Lord, after Peter's great confession, went on to say that the Son of Man was going to be betrayed into the hands of men and to be crucified. And Peter stepped up and said, Far be it from thee, Lord, this shall not happen unto thee. And our Lord rebuked him, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What was happening? It was this. Peter said, You are not going to die. You can't, I've just said you're the son of God. You can't die. Silence, says Christ. You've got to accept the whole of my teaching. Deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. If you don't see the absolute necessity of my death, there's no salvation for you. You're speaking the words of the devil. He still says that. He's saying it through this bread and wine this evening. There is only one way of forgiveness. There is only one way of reconciliation to God. It is to believe that the Son of God died for your sins, was bruised for your iniquities, gave his life a ransom for many. Follow me, he says, and that's the teaching you follow. And then with regard to your life, I haven't time to go into the details, work it out for yourselves. What's the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's just his way of telling you and me the life we've got to live. If you follow Christ, there are certain things you've got to leave behind. You've got to leave behind the way of the world and all its vaunted, boasted pleasures and happinesses. You've got to leave them. You can't serve God and Mammon. You can't be in the world and in Christ at the same time. Listen, he says this. He says a point may come when you'll have to face this demand of mine. If thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life, halt or maimed, than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell or fire. Follow me, he says. And if you follow him, you may have to cut off metaphorically hands and feet and pluck out eyes and go after him. There are things you have to leave. There are things you have to do. Sermon on the Mount. There's the way. He says, this is my life. This is how I live. Follow me. Live like this. Enter in at the straight gate. Come unto the narrow way. This is Christianity. Follow me. Do it, he says, whatever it may cost you. It will certainly mean misunderstanding. It may mean persecution. It may mean death. If any man loveth his life in this world more than me, he says, it's no good, he's lost. He that loveth his life shall lose it, but he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it and have it. Follow me. Deny yourself and your own ideas and your own likes and dislikes. Take up the cross. Of persecution, misunderstanding, the laughter and the jeering of the clever, sophisticated people. The the rollicking laughter of the whole world that bursts of its drunkenness and its prostitution and its infidelity and its fornication. Let them roar at you, he says. Doesn't matter. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. Follow me. Walk through this world as I walk through it. Come after me. That's his demand. In your thinking, in your way of living. He wants your heart, your mind, your will, your everything. That's the nature of his call. Here he comes to Matthew and says, follow me. And he arose and followed him. What made him do it? Why should anybody listen? Why should anybody respond? What are the reasons for obeying this call? Oh, I could keep you to midnight in answering this question. Let me give you headings. Here are some of the reasons. Follow me, he says. Why do you think Matthew got up leaving the ledgers and everything else and went after him? Well, the first answer is, because he is who he is. Matthew had never heard a voice like that before. As the Lord uttered the words, follow me, he was moved and disturbed in the depths of his personality. There was something in the accents. There was something in the whole demeanor. This magisterial element, this command, this totalitarian command. He'd never heard anything like it. The authority of the person. And then he looked at him. And the beauty of the face, the splendor of the eyes, the glory that came shining through the body of flesh in which he was present. You remember a Roman soldier later on, I think, said the last word about this. He was sent with others to arrest our Lord. But he went back and said, they said, why haven't you brought him? And the only thing that the men could say in extenuation of his failure was this. Never man spake like this man. He said, I couldn't touch him. There was something about him that made people fall back. The glory, the majesty, the grandeur of his blessed person. And Matthew saw it and felt it. And whether he had other reasons or not, I don't know. But that was enough. This man, he's unlike all I've ever seen or heard. There's no choice. I must go after him. And if you and I but knew him and saw him, there'd be no hesitation. The trouble with people who are not Christians is they've never seen him. Look at him, my friend. Look at him in his person. Look at him in his works. Look at the majesty of his knowledge. Look at the perfection of his answers. Look at the power of his miracles. Look at him, I say. Look at his tenderness and his compassion. Always a time for every every lonely case of need and of suffering thronged by a crowd. He is aware that a woman has touched the hem of his garment in her desperate need. Yes, he has time to speak to her. Dying on the cross, with the weight of the sins of men upon him, he still has time to be concerned about a thief dying at his side. Look at him, my friend. Look at the greatness, the majesty, the knowledge, the power, the command, the tenderness, the compassion, the meekness, the lowliness. Look at him as he is. If you only had a glimpse of him, you wouldn't hesitate. You'd go after him. But look at him supremely on that cross on Calvary's hill. This mighty son of God. This authority. This power, dying in weakness, what's the matter? Well, you see, I've already told you, he's there because of you. Have you seen it? Look at him again with Isaac Watts and begin to say, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory, died." My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, I must leave, give up all, go after him, follow him, as I see that, he demands everything, I've no choice, I go after him, oh, the glory and the blessedness of the person, secondly, let me give you this reason, why should you follow him, well, look at it like this, my friend, consider the alternative of not following him, Why follow him? Well, follow him if you had no other reason because of that from which he saves you. He says the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. What's he saving you from? Why does he ask you to enter in at the straight gate and to come unto the narrow way? Well, he says the alternative is the wide gate and the broad way. The thing the crowd's going into. Ah! All the advertising agencies are saying this is the way. Wide, look at it, and broad, not like that narrow, cramped, little Christian life. Here's life, which is real life. And they're crowding in. Many there be which go in thereat. Yes, but where's it going to? Wide is the gate and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction. Destruction. The alternative to following Christ is to go to destruction. There's no other alternative. He and he alone can save you from the guilt and the penalty that your guilt will get. He alone can save you from everlasting misery and unhappiness. He says so himself. He says there's a place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And he's come to save us from that destruction. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. My friend, listen to him. Follow me, Jesus. The alternative is everlasting destruction. But I don't want to leave you on a negative note. My third and last reason for following him, therefore, is this follow him because of that to which his following, our following him will lead us. Follow me, he says, Very well, I ask. What you give me? Where would you take me if I come? And here's his answer. Immediately, the moment you get up, free pardon and forgiveness for all your past sins. Everything forgiven. He literally promises that. Follow him and though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He will give you the assurance that your past sins are all cast into the sea of God's eternal forgetfulness, immediately and immediately you're reconciled to God. Not only that, you become a child of God. You receive a new life. He'll give it you. Go after him and he'll give it you. It's the gift of God. He'll regenerate you. He'll put a new principle into your life. You won't know yourself. You'll start on an entirely new life. What else? Well, think of the blessings of the way. Is there anything more wonderful in life than I have... A companion. To travel with a companion. A great, a glorious companion. Don't you feel drawn to such people? Don't you like to speak to them and to listen to them? And to be near them? Of course we do. Well, here he is, King of kings, Lord of lords. He'll be your companion. Follow me, he says. He'll be your friend. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And whatever eventualities may come to meet you, You'll find he's gone before you. Everything is catered for. Doesn't matter what happens. Let the world do its worst to you. He will be with you. You'll never know any need. All your needs will be provided. You'll be able to say with Paul, I am full. I have enough. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Not only that. When the end comes and the specter of death approaches, You'll have no fear. He, he, says, that believeth on me hath passed from death unto life. He's taken the sting out of death for those who believe in him. Death is not an awful thing to the Christian. It's just a little rivulet that separates this world of sin and woe from the land of pure delights where saints immortal reign. He's conquered death. He's conquered the grave. He's opened the gateway of heaven for all who belong to him. What else? Oh, I can't describe the rest. The glory that yet awaits us. He's gone, he says, to prepare a place for us. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there he may be also. My dear friend, follow him and you know if all these bombs are let off together and the world goes up in flames it will make no difference to you. He's gone to prepare a place for you. It's glorious. It's glory everlasting and you'll be there with him. Follow him. Those are some of the things to which he lead you The half, the quarter, the tenth, the millionth has not been expressed by my feeble word. He'll lead you to life, which is life indeed, which is life more abundant. He'll lead you to God, he'll lead you to heaven, he'll lead you to everlasting glory and bliss. Very well. Have you heard his voice calling you and saying, follow me? Can you say, I hear thy tender voice that calls me, Lord, to thee. For washing, cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary. Have you heard it? And are you ready to say, I am coming, Lord, coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flowed on Calvary. Are you ready to say it? Or are you ready to say these words? Alas, they're not in our present hymn book. They were in our former hymn book. Let me read them to you. This is what Matthew felt, you see. This is what every man who's ever become a Christian felt. This is how it's put, oh, star of truth, down shining... Through clouds of doubt and fear. I ask beneath thy guidance. My pathway may appear. However long the journey. How hard soe'er it be. Though I be lone and weary. Lead on. I'll follow thee. I know thy blessed radiance. Can never lead astray. However ancient custom may find some other way. E through untrod deserts or over trackless sea, though I be lone and weary. Lead on, I'll follow thee. The bleeding feet of martyrs, thy toilsome way have trod, but fires of human passion may light the way to God. Then though my feet may falter, while I thy beams can see, Though I be lone and weary, lead on. I'll follow thee. Though loving friends forsake me or plead with me in tears. Though angry foes may threaten and shake my soul with fears. Still to my high allegiance, I will not faithless be through life or death. Forever. Lead on. I'll follow thee. Have you ever said that to him? Tell him that now. Take this opportunity. Say to him. As Matthew said. Jesus I my cross of day. All to leave. And follow thee. Destitute. Despised. Forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be telling with Matthew Rise and following Amen.